Welcome again to our study in the Epistle of Paul to the Philippians. We're looking at uh, chapter 4 tonight again, and we're going to look at uh, verses 10 through 13. So as is our uh, custom, we'll uh, begin with prayer, and then we'll read chapter 4 and go through verses 10 through 13 as we look to see what Paul is writing and what it means for us. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for the privilege of meeting this way. We thank you, Lord, for your word which lives and abides forever. We thank you and bless you, Lord, that by your grand providence and by your sovereignty and your omnipotence, you have maintained your word throughout all these millennia so that we have it and so that we are able to read it and by your spirit to apply it to our lives so that we might walk in the footsteps of our Messiah, and that we might be lights in this dark world. Lord, I pray that you would be with each one of us as we meet together, that we would be encouraged and strengthened in your word. And I pray, Father, that even in these difficult times uh, where there is a a pandemic that has essentially gone throughout the world, we just pray, Father, that you would give us strength, ability, and courage to walk in the righteous ways that you intend, and in so doing, to bring honor and glory to you. And we thank you, Lord, for our Savior, Yeshua. We thank you for your Ruach HaKodesh, your abiding presence with us and in us. And we bless you for this, Father. May your word dwell richly among us all. And as we study tonight, may these words be a real uplifting time for all of us, and one which causes us, each of us, to commit ourselves to walk in the footsteps of our Messiah and to be the lights in this world of your grace and mercy. We bless you for these things. In Yeshua's name, amen. Okay, as I said, we're going to read chapter 4 of Philippians, and we usually bounce around between the various uh, English translations, and we're looking uh, this evening at the uh, Christian Standard Bible, which used to be called the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and its translation of chapter 4. So, Philippians chapter 4. So then, my brothers, you are dearly loved and longed for, my joy and crown. In this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Eudea and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Messiah Yeshua. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that, once again, you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. 
I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little, and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Messiah Yeshua. Now to our God and Father be glory for ever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Messiah Yeshua. Those brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those from uh, Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Yeshua Messiah be with your spirit. Okay, well, that's where we'll uh, start on verse 10 tonight. And these are uh, very straightforward verses. Uh, I think they're especially uh, applicable to our time as we are dealing uh, in one way or another with this pandemic. Uh, some within our communities are uh, affected by it, and others were trying to remain healthy. We know that the Lord is with us, and this is what is such a joy, to know the Word of God, to read it, to believe it, and to live on the basis of it. And surely this is what Paul is driving at, as in these verses he is imploring upon the readers that we trust in the Lord and that we allow our lives to be in his care and that we not fret and become overly concerned and worried about those things over which we have no control. Paul tells us in these verses that he has learned the wonderful lesson of being content in the Lord and how this affects all aspects of life. So in verse 10, he says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. So he's thanking them for the things that they sent by way of Epaphroditus that were of real need to him. Remember, he's in prison at this point, and in the Roman prisons, they did not provide the prisoners with food and necessary things. That was to be supplied by those outside of the prison who would come and give them things. And even then, there's every indication that not everything that was brought to be given to a prisoner actually ended up being given to that prisoner. Uh, you can imagine that there were those who, within the prison, who were uh, the Roman officials and so forth, might make things for themselves, take things for themselves. Uh, what could anybody do about it? No one could. So you can understand why the prisoners in a Roman prison were very much at the mercies of family and friends who would aid them and help them with food and necessary clothing and so forth. And this is, of course, what happened. The Philippians did uh, send 
Epaphroditus with these things and and this is what Paul is talking about when he says I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me indeed you were concerned before but you lacked opportunity so we don't know how exactly to interpret that last phrase you lacked opportunity Uh, but let's just put ourselves in this situation with Paul to see how much he was so grateful for those outside of the prison who cared for him by bringing necessary uh, uh, food and clothing and so forth. Well, the Greek opens with exorain uh, and kurio, uh, which literally, I rejoice in the Lord, where the particle de, translated as but by the uh, American Standard Bible, as we have it here, uh, is more accurately understood to connect Paul's previous thoughts with his current expression of joy for the gift of the Philippian community sent to him by Epaphroditus. Thus, Paul is not comparing a former sense of being forgotten with a renewed sense of being remembered, having received the provisions they sent. That's not exactly how the Greek would have it. It just is that he is being very gracious for this. The primary emphasis is upon, I rejoiced in the Lord. The Greek form, known as an epistolary aorist, that is, an aorist, a past tense verb, um, which is something that's completed in the past, but in, the, in an epistolary aorist, it talks about them having done something which he now is writing about. It simply seeks to gather together the whole time frame of his imprisonment and the divinely given ability to rejoice, knowing that the Lord would provide what he needed as he underwent the woes of suffering for the gospel. So he wants to make it clear, as we'll see in the coming uh, phrases here, He's not pointing his finger at the uh, Philippians for being less than kind to him or uh, forgetting about him or something. No, he's talking about that they had they they were able to do what is necessary now, and he's grateful for it. And he's not holding them accountable as though they didn't take care of his needs previously. Further, he makes known that he was enabled to rejoice in the Lord greatly. That is, with full exuberance of spirit having experienced the faithfulness of the Lord not only to sustain his life there in prison, but also in assuring him that the Lord was caring for him and that his suffering for the sake of the gospel continued to give honor and praise to the one he served. It is really uh, difficult for us, I think, I know it is for me, to just express how Paul says that he has he, he never failed to praise the Lord even when he was imprisoned for the sharing of the gospel. I mean, and the Roman prisons, from everything that we know about them, were no good place to live. There was nothing but sorrow and nothing but uh, beatings and uh, misuse of the prisoners and uh, giving them even the minimal amount just to sustain their life in prison. Uh, How is it that he could rejoice? Well, with, he, he says he rejoiced with a full exuberance of spirit, having experienced the faithfulness of the Lord not only to sustain his life there in prison, but also in assuring him that the Lord was caring for him and that his suffering for the sake of the gospel continued to give honor and praise to the one he served. Now, that's not easy, is it? We all of us struggle at times to rejoice in the Lord when things are not going well, family members are sick, 
things within our community are not going well, or people are at odds with each other, which was happening in Philippi as well. But here, once again, we see an excellent picture of what it means to have the glory of God as a primary motivation for our lives of service to Him. It's what the Reformers called sola dea gloria, only for the glory of God. We need to have this concept in mind. Everything that we do in our work, in our entertainment, in our pleasures, in the necessities of life that we have to take care of, whether it's uh, household work, whether it's uh, building uh, things within the house that need to be repaired, or whether it's in our own communities, whether it's being together with our brothers and sisters, whether it's participating in various events in our own uh, area and so forth, all of these things are to be done to the glory of God. If we have sola dea gloria in mind, how can I thank the Lord and praise the Lord and honor the Lord? Whatever I'm doing, am I going to the store to buy groceries? Am I going to help someone who is in need? Am I working at my daily work by which I have the means for purchasing food and uh, paying bills and so forth? Am I able to do that work for the glory of God. That's what Paul is teaching us here. All that he has done in his suffering in prison, as well as his aiding others, teaching and admonishing and encouraging people in the faith, all of it ultimately is not done to bring glory to himself or to bring praise to himself, but for the glory of God. Here we are encouraged by the Apostles' testimony. For even in the deepest times, which could bring utter despair for Paul, he confesses to the Philippian community that he has been enabled to rejoice in the Lord and to even rejoice greatly. The obvious emphasis is that his ability to rejoice was because of his faith and trust in the Lord. What does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? To rejoice in the Lord means to be given the ability to grow in faith a faith that affirms the goodness of God and his ability and desire to strengthen his people even in times of great distress. So if we're in great distress here, then in what way can we rejoice in the Lord? Isn't rejoicing and distress just seem to be opposites? Yes, but even in our distress, we can stop and give thanks to the Lord that he enables us to persevere we can thank Him for the good things that are still with us. Even in times of deep distress, we still have His presence with us. We have His Word hidden in our hearts that we can rehearse and consider and rejoice in. Well, this ability to rejoice, while based upon Paul's own personal relationship with his risen and reigning Messiah, but also in the fact that the Philippian community was progressing in their service to the Lord and thus to him. He was rejoicing in what the Lord was doing amongst the Philippian community. He was seeing that God was at work and it rejoiced him. Do we rejoice when we see God blessing others? Do we rejoice when we see how God can be used even by our own words and by our own actions to help others and to point them unto Yeshua? This is where our rejoicing should be in pleasing the Lord, in serving Him, 
in serving one another and ultimately bringing him the glory. He goes on to say that now at last you have revived your concern for me, having sent Epaphroditus with provisions that Paul greatly needed. The service and close fellowship of the Philippian community had been tangibly expressed to Paul, and he intends to show his gratefulness, not only for the fact that his physical needs are being met, but even more, that they are clearly standing with him in the work of the Lord, as Paul himself continued, even in prison, to be a living testimony of God's grace for all who are in Yeshua. So, here once again we see the need for the local body of Messiah to be engaged in supporting those who are doing the work and to help others who are taking the gospel to other parts of the world and ultimately to help one another. Now granted, those of us that are teachers, we are admonished by the Lord to do so without requiring payment. But the scriptures teach and Yeshua himself taught very clearly that the laborer is worthy of his hire. And so it is right and good to support those who are in the operation of teaching and, and uh, pastoring and helping the community, the local community, continue forward and to grow in the Lord. And this is what Paul is telling to the Philippian group that they he is so pleased that they have now revived their concern for him and that in so doing they are meeting his very, very personal needs, much to the glory of God and for his ability to continue forward. It is not as though Paul had doubted the love and concern that the Philippian community had for him, for at the opening of the epistle he wrote, in chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance, or we could say in every remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul, once again, emphasizes the fact that the Philippian believers, the community of believers in Philippi, were partners together with him in this enterprise of taking the gospel to other parts of the Roman Empire and also as giving the gospel within the, the prison in which he was in, imprisoned. If it had not been for their help of him, he would not have been able to do all that he wanted to do. Indeed, Paul has made it clear in his epistle to the Romans that his primary ability to rejoice, even in his dire circumstances, was his full reliance upon the Lord. Here again, as I read and worked through this, and I just marveled at the way that Paul can say, no matter my situation, no matter what I, consequences I'm in, I rejoice. I rejoice when I have little or nothing. I rejoice when I have much. Isn't this something that we must learn and teach ourselves? No matter what situation we're in, no matter how desperate it may seem, we still have every right to rejoice in the Lord. And why? Because God is in control of all things. Nothing happens outside of his purposes for each of his children and for the collective whole of his children as we meet together in a given community. I know that it is difficult at times when things are not going well, 
when there's division, as we see here in, in the uh, group at Philippi. There were these two ladies that were causing a division, and people were taking sides, apparently. And this had to be uh, quite distressful for those that were in leadership. And yet Paul says, even in the most difficult of times, we are to find the way to rejoice in the Lord. And for what can we rejoice? Because he does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the creator. He spoke and it all came into being. He sent his son, Yeshua, our Savior, who came and lived on this earth and died and rose again and ascended on high and has promised by his very word that he's returning again to reign and to show his glory and greatness. So, Paul has made it clear in his epistle to the Romans that his primary ability to rejoice, even in his dire circumstances, was his full reliance upon the Lord. Very famous verse, Romans 8.28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The only way that that verse can be true is if God is in fact sovereign over all. That nothing happens outside of God's purposes. That God is sovereign and omnipotent and able to do all of his holy will and nothing occurs in the universe by accident. God brings all things together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. So in a very real sense, Paul's current imprisonment was yet another event which, rather than causing Paul to question the goodness of God, was received as part of the sovereign plan of the Lord to bring about his perfect will and purposes, and by faith, Paul considers himself to be used of God in accordance with his sovereign purpose and plan. I just have to say, now people may say, well, Tim, you harp too much on the sovereignty of God. I would retort by simply saying that the scriptures are constantly referring to the sovereignty of God. If we accept the scriptures as they truly are, and we accept them as infallible, and as uh, being the product of the, of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, the scriptures teach us that the Holy Spirit bore along the apostles so that what they wrote was exactly what he intended. Well, when we have that well in mind, we are more enabled when we come into very difficult circumstances to say, Lord, it's possible that I'm coming into this because I've made wrong decisions and so forth and so on, but you are in control and I trust you for this and I will submit to you. Tell me, show me, lead me what I must do, where I must correct myself, where I must seek forgiveness. I want your blessing, and God has promised to give it to us as we seek him and as we submit to him and follow what he intends us to do. So his perfect will and purposes, and by faith Paul considered himself to be used of God in accordance with his sovereign purpose and plan. One author has put it this way, his, that is Paul's, imprisonment had already resulted in rejoicing, since it became a catalyst for the advance of the gospel in Rome, as we read in chapter 1, verse 18 of Philippians. Now he tells them that their tangible reviving of friendship has likewise caused him to rejoice yet again while in detainment. As he twice exhorted them in chapter 3, verse 1 and 4, verse 4, his rejoicing was in the Lord, 
another subtle indication of the three-way bond between him, them, and Messiah that holds the letter together. Paul rejoiced in the Lord, the author of their common salvation, over the tangible evidence that they together belong to the Lord and thus to one another. Paul continues to emphasize the camaraderie, the unity that goes on among people of a given community. Paul has been to Philippi. Paul knows this group and he considers them to be bound together and he with them for the work of the Lord and for the glory of his name. Here once again we see the inspired scriptures emphasizing the utter necessity and high value of a believer's being in community with each other. It is in community that we are enabled to encourage each other, intelligently pray for one another, to lovingly exhort each other, and to bear each other's burdens and thus fulfilling the Torah of Messiah. As Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the Torah, the law of Messiah. We bear When we bear each other's burdens, and we do so out of love, not out of seeking to make ourselves look important or to uh, cause others to uh, uh, consider us to be something special. No, we bear each other's burdens because we're obeying what Yeshua has said. And in obeying Yeshua, we honor him and we give him glory. And here's another reason why causing disruption, causing uh, dissension in a given community is a very grave offense. We are the body of the Messiah and we are to show to a watching world what it means to love one another and care for each other and to build one another up and not tear each other down. But it is the common uh, problem that many groups face that gossip is the very thing that causes divisions. And it's something that God hates. God wants us to be together, to aid one another, to help each other. Granted, when we need to, we confront each other in love. We're careful by the way we confront, and we do so after much prayer. But we seek to confront in order to bring about unity. And we live in a fallen world. And there will always be disputes and always differences. But we can overcome this in the power of the Lord as we submit ourselves to him. He goes on to say, Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. For fear of giving the impression by his words that he considered the Philippian community to have previously forgotten him and his needs, Paul makes it clear that such was not the case. He recognized that they were concerned for his welfare and most surely were regularly praying for God's hand of provision upon him. But, as Paul here makes clear, they lacked opportunity. This is exactly what the Greek term, which is akareomai, uh, means, and is found only here in the apostolic scriptures. Uh, if we had other places where it's used, it would be helpful, so we could see the, the nuances of the meaning of the, of the term in various uh, contexts. But it's only used here. Paul uses it here and here alone, that they lacked opportunity. Uh, 
Such opportunity can also be understood as having an inability to perform what was would have been required to get provisions to Paul while he was incarcerated. You didn't just go and knock on the door and say, would you give this to, to Paul? No, that's not the way it worked. Um, there was all kinds of different things that you had to go through to bring things to a prisoner. And you can imagine that it would be the same way today. Uh, things had to be examined, so forth and so on. Of course, in the Roman uh, prisons, the, the guards were not uh, all that scrupulous. If they saw something being brought in to be given to a prisoner and it was something that they wanted, it probably would never make it to the prisoner. Well, uh, they lacked opportunity, probably because they didn't have the, the ability to, to know how to bring things to Paul and make sure that he got them. Such opportunity may have required someone with personal connections to those who guarded and maintained the per prison facilities. And we know that there were believers who, before coming to faith in the Messiah, were part of the Roman government, and some undoubtedly were workers at uh, prisons and so forth. So to know someone who has the inside scoop would be the way to have an opportunity to get things to a prisoner for his, for his maintenance. The point Paul wishes to emphasize is that the Philippian community clearly desired to minister to Paul and to do all that they could do to help meet his physical needs while incarcerated. It was not a matter of their desire or their clear intention to show their love and kindness to Paul. What they lacked was the ability to carry out their desires. But what exactly their inability entailed, we cannot be sure. It seems quite obvious that they may not have had someone who would have been able to carry the gifts to Paul, for not everyone would have had both the ability and knowledge of what it would be like, what it would take, to uh, get supplies to a prisoner in a Roman prison. It may have been that Epaphroditus was not currently available to be sent until a later time. It may also have been a question of exactly how much provision could be assured to be given to Paul in prison, and it may have required some association with prison officials, etc., Regardless, Paul wants the believing community at Philippi to know that he counted them as true servants of the Lord and that he was not in any way suggesting that they had failed in being partners with him and his work for the Lord. So he makes it very clear that, that they, they wanted to, but they, had, they lacked opportunity. And again, I think that probably means they did not have a, uh, a means of taking things to this prison so that uh, they could be inevitably given to Paul. In verse 11 he goes on, Note that I speak from want, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Paul does not want the Philippian community to think that he's trying to move them to further gifts by expressing his current needs. His current desire and ability to rejoice in the Lord greatly is not primarily tied to the fact that Epaphroditus had arrived bearing the provisions sent from the Philippian community. He is grateful for their gifts and their willingness to show their desire to be partners with him in this gospel mission, but he does not want them to think that his rejoicing is an underhanded way of asking for more. You know, it's amazing to me how many times you have very prominent teachers in our world 
going about and giving their messages and so forth, and regularly asking for money, taking an offering, and so forth and so on. Well, that's not what Paul uh, models here at all. He's not even asking for money. But he's grateful that the believers in Philippi uh, know of his needs and are willing to seek to help. In other words, those who are teachers, leaders, however you want to say it, uh, those who are like Paul going from one community to another to help and to uh, build up communities and so forth, it should not be their place to ask for funds. We never find that. Now, sometimes we see Paul seeking funds for someone else, but not for himself. It's amazing that in the modern world, so much uh, Christian ministry is fueled by a regularly ongoing uh, compelling people to send money. Well, that wasn't Paul's modus operandi at all. He goes on to say, not that I speak from want. Paul is not sending a poor me notice in hopes of garnering further provisions from the Philippians. Nor is he suggesting that the basis of his rejoicing in the Lord is when he receives provisions from others. Much to the contrary, his rejoicing is in his ability to place his faith in God and to live anticipating God's ultimate and final provision for all aspects of life. Yes, this is in such contrast to a great deal of modern Christian uh, missions and ministries. I don't find anywhere in the scriptures where those that were sent out to do the work of ministering were expected to solicit funds from all the places that they go. No, we just do not find this in the apostolic scriptures. They relied upon God. They worked with their own hands and so forth and so on. And those who were in communities were on their own seeking to help them as partners in the work that they were accomplishing. He goes on to say, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. Paul first makes it clear that such a life of faithful reliance upon God is that which is learned. Monthano is the common uh, Greek verb for learning, gaining information. Not something that immediately comes upon the new believer. In other words, it's something that we learn as we grow in our faith, as we continue to walk with the Lord and to learn his word and to put it into practice. When Paul is able to say, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am, this is something that is uh, the, the very sign of spiritual maturity. But it is something that is wonderful to be able to experience that even though things are tough, even though there are difficulties in life, we are able to say, Lord, I know that you will help. I know that you will provide the means to accomplish what is necessary. I trust you, and in trusting you, I can rely upon you. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't do all within our power to uh, meet the, the needs that we have, whether it's working with our hands, whether whatever it may be. We don't sit and 
just twiddle our thumbs and say the Lord will provide. No, we're not to be lazy. We're to be hard workers. But in all of this, we recognize that what we need is ultimately from the hand of God. And we need to learn this lesson. Sometimes I think when difficult times come upon us, as is happening now in this uh, time of the pandemic, uh, I think it's something that the Lord uses to begin to uh, ask ourselves, what am I doing that I ought to be doing better? Or what am I not doing that I should be doing? Where am I intent upon doing what is right in the Lord's eyes so that my needs can be met? And yet, in spite of that, even when we're working hard at a job and getting paid for it, we still recognize that what comes to us is from God's hand. Why? Because we've learned to be content in every aspect of life, whether we have an abundance or whether we lack. Like Paul says, he's learned to be content in all circumstances. Such learning is putting into regular practice what one comes to know as true through the study and application of the scriptures, through an ongoing life of prayer, and through mutual encouragement within the fellowship of believers. I know that day by day when Paulette and I pray together, uh, when we're finished uh, praying the time that we've spent together, uh, we have a sense that God is has heard us, that he will hear our prayers and he will uh, uh, accomplish what he intends. We've had this recently done as we've prayed for our family members who are, have been quite sick. Some were even uh, given just not sure they were going to make it. And now, uh, after prayer and, t- and times of prayer together, we see God's hand working in ways that we knew he could and would. And it gives us such great peace to know that our lives are in his hands. We have this ability to approach day-to-day living with a firm grasp of God's promises and provisions, which comes from growing in one's relationship with God and practicing the basic elements of walking by faith. What does it mean to be content? Autarkes. This Greek word is found again only here. Paul's using some words that aren't found anywhere else in the apostolic scriptures. It's only found here in all of the apostolic scriptures, and it means to consider that which one has and experiences to be fully sufficient to live a contented life. This, of course, can only happen when one is fully convinced and fully persuaded that all good things come from God and that he is the source of life and all things necessary to live in a way that honors him. Surely, this is not rely and relax theology. No. (laughs) The idea, well, just let go and let God, you know, just... Just sit still and he'll figure everything out. No. True faith rests upon the assurance that as the believer in Yeshua lives in obedience to the teachings of Scripture, submitting to the leading of the Spirit, and putting into daily practice the very things God requires of his children, that God will give them all they need to accomplish the work he calls them to perform. We constantly are are seeking to do what God wants us to do and to do it better and to do it more often, to live in a, a life that really honors him. We want to give ourselves, our energies, our, our uh, talents and so forth to bear the message of his greatness to a watching world. 
But when we do that, he is the one who brings the increase. It's not because we're doing it. It's because we're obeying that God's blessings come upon us, but God is still the one who brings to us everything we need, and he should receive the glory. Here is a clear measure by which all who are born again by faith in Yeshua may determine how they are growing in their faith and maturity in Yeshua. We may rightly ask the question, am I learning to be content in whatever circumstances I am? Do I find myself uh, complaining to God? Complaining, why aren't you doing this? I ask and ask and ask and you don't answer. We are being taught in these circumstances to rely upon God and to be willing to rejoice in every aspect of our life, knowing that He is in control and He will bring about His perfect and holy will. Doing a self-inventory in this manner will help us all seek strength where we are weak, to confess where discontentment has crept in, and to renew our commitment to trust God for all our needs, and this is to find true contentment in serving Him in all aspects of our lives. This, of course, does not mean that we will never experience sorrows and woes. Surely, in this fallen world, it's full of troubles and the work of the enemy. But even in the face of grave difficulties and sorrows, we can strive to experience precisely what the Apostle Paul here states. We, too, in the power of the Spirit, can strive and even achieve contentment in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. Surely, this requires a growing strength of faith, and this is inevitable as we learn more and more to rely upon the Lord and to find in Him and in His provisions the very basis for a genuine life of contentment. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3, 5-6. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Well, Paul goes on to write in verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now, that's an amazing verse. Do you mean that we're going when we're going hungry, we can still rejoice in the Lord? Now, you can use that metaphor for anything. When you don't have the money to pay the bills, maybe we need to ask, well, why don't I have the money? Have I misused my funds? What lessons is God trying to teach me here? But even then we can say, Lord, I know that you will provide my needs. I will do what is right and stop doing what is wrong. I'll start using my money wisely. I admit that I need to change things, but I need your help and I trust that you will help me. When we come to him with a heart like that, he is ready, able, and willing to help us and to show us his might. So Paul says, I know how to get along with humble means. Paul had experienced humble circumstances, no doubt interpreted by his enemies 
as the very thing that in their minds proved him to be unqualified or even being punished for his bold teachings about Yeshua and so forth. Yet even in such dire circumstances, Paul was fully convinced that God's plans were being worked out for the furtherance of the gospel message and also for the strengthening of his people in the faith. Can you imagine how Paul must have felt as he was shunned by the Jewish community uh, in which he grew up? That he was considered a traitor because he had followed this Yeshua. And yet, what we read about Paul is not in any way that he was bitter or in somehow put down. He had learned the all-important lesson of handing everything over to the Lord, trusting Him, knowing that the Lord is the one who is in control, and the Lord can bring about all of His holy will and will bring it about. And this means that Paul could rejoice in the Lord and rejoice even when things were difficult. That's the message that he's given us here. I know how to get along with humble means. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. If that thought, if that truth pervades our lives, how much better we will be at facing the difficulties in life. How much better we will be in helping others to see the glories of God and His love and faithfulness to us, even in this fallen world. Paul goes on to say, and I also know how to live in prosperity. People often think that living in dire circumstances, or, as Paul puts it, humble means, presents the greatest challenge to one's faith. And surely it is true that when we find ourselves in financial troubles and other situations that could cause significant troubles, we surely are tested as to the vibrancy of our faith. Do we believe that God is for us even when things are going downhill from our perspective? But there is a dangerous issue that may often present itself if we come into sudden wealth. When suddenly, for instance, a person is gifted with an unexpected inheritance, the draw of the flesh is to forego seeking the Lord for his supply and simply trusting in the new wealth one has acquired. Well, there's always that tendency of the weakness of the flesh to say, Oh, I've got all the money I need. I'm set. I've got $500,000 in the bank. And uh, I'm going to be careful how I use it, but boy... We may not ever say this, but maybe deep down inside we say, I'll never need to ask the Lord for anything. Well, that's the devil's trick. This is why Paul can say he was content when he had nothing, because he trusted the Lord. Trusting the Lord was the most important thing. Well, the same thing is true when we have plenty. Trust the Lord to use it properly. Trust the Lord to use it for His glory and for His glory amongst the people that know us and understand that the Lord is for us and not against us. For Paul, then, to confess that he knew how to live in prosperity teaches us once again that a growing, genuine faith in God and in the life of faith he has granted must continue to be the believer's focus and will therefore become a means to honor the Lord all the more for his provisions. 
We ought to seek the Lord for his provision. And we ought to trust the Lord, even when it appears that the provision is not coming. We trust him. We live for his glory. And when he does meet our needs, we give him the glory for that. And that's the whole point. That whether we have little or whether we have much, we honor the Lord, who is the very one who sustains us. The point that must be emphasized by Paul's words here, however, is to be reminded that wealth when one fails to give God the credit and honor he deserves in giving such bounty, can equally be a snare to the child of God, as is poverty. If we think that poverty can bring us to the point where, I don't know if God's gonna, God can help me or not, then we ought to be also recognizing that when wealth comes, we could say, well, I did that myself. Look what I've done. I don't need to trust the Lord anymore. Now, we may never come right out and say that, but we may live like it. I don't need prayer. I don't need to ask the Lord for his help. I got everything I need. You see, on the one hand, the enemy uses poverty to cause us to question whether God is really helping us. And on the other hand, the enemy can use wealth to make us think that we don't need God. How then can we seek strength to follow Paul's example and be able to live a life of faith and honor unto God, regardless of whether our means are humble or prosperous. We do so by practicing a steady life of faith, giving God the glory for all he has done and continues to do for us, and to make giving him the glory in all aspects of our lives a central and all-important aspect of our life of faith. This is what Paul means in the next phrase of our verse. He says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. What does he learn from being hungry? To trust the Lord. What does he learn of having an abundance and not having any need? It is to thank the Lord for meeting his needs. And what does he learn from suffering need? Well, it means that God is able to meet all of our needs and he may bring us into various situations in life to teach us and to solidify the truth of that message. So Paul now emphasizes this reality, the ability to live out a life of faith as described by the apostle himself is not something the believer has immediately, but is a secret that must be learned. What does it mean to be learned. How do you learn that secret? By walking through those paths of life. When we walk through the path where we are unable on our own to accomplish what is right and good, but God enables us to do so, we recognize he's the one that receives the glory. And when we have plenty, more than we ever could imagine, we give him the praise because every good thing that we have comes from him. The first important truth to be gleaned from Paul's own testimony is that coming to faith in Yeshua and being born again by the Spirit does not bring that believer into, quote, a life of material wealth and prosperity. Surely if Paul himself confesses that his own life as a chosen apostle of Yeshua included both being impoverished as well as experiencing prosperity, 
then it is clear that the modern-day message of the so-called prosperity gospel is a trick of the enemy and is not the good news at all. And what is the prosperity gospel? Oh, there are large charismatic churches in our area that are teaching that if you come and and you join the church and you uh, uh, get the Spirit of God placed upon you and you speak in tongues, that uh, you're going to continue to become more and more wealthy and life is going to have less and less struggles and everything's going to be prosperous. But note Paul's words in his epistle to the Romans. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Messiah, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Don't let anyone tell you that those who are truly belong to the Lord, Yeshua, through faith in him, are going to have a life of prosperity and no suffering. The scriptures are clearly opposite of that. It doesn't mean that we suffer needlessly, but even in our suffering, we learn to do and to be something that we otherwise wouldn't be. The point Paul emphasizes is clear. Those who are truly born from above will be endowed with the spiritual strength and ability to persevere in all circumstances, whether in need or in abundance. And the spiritual strength and ability to honor God in all of life's circumstances is that which comes through walking with Him in all aspects of life and growing in one's ability to rest upon the promises of God and live them out in our everyday decisions. This is made possible as we continually feed upon His Word, fellowship with other believers, making prayer and communion with God the very breath and heartbeat of our lives. The secret, mueo, is not something that Paul found and suddenly had success. The secret is recognizing the utter greatness of God, believing what he has revealed, and putting it into practice in one's walk of faith. The secret is to grow in one's faith to fully accept the truth, that God will bring about all that he has promised, and that ultimately this means that all who are his children will become more uh, more and more conformed to the very mind and purpose of Yeshua himself, to give God the glory in all aspects of our lives, more and more attaining to this goal, brings strength in times of difficulty, the ability to help others in their walk of faith, and to know the contentment of rejoicing in the Lord in all aspects of one's life. There's nothing that brings greater contentment than to honestly believe and continue to affirm over and over again that God is in control and that as we submit to Him, He has a plan for our individual lives that will honor Him and that will strengthen us in every aspect of life that we face. And finally, he says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Isn't that a wonderful truth? There's nothing that God intends for us to accomplish that he hasn't equipped us to do it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's God's work in me that enables me to be what he wants me to be and to accomplish what he wants me to accomplish. 
This final line of the paragraph gives the succinct and powerful conclusion of Paul's teaching about living all of life as unto the Lord and thus through his power. Obviously, the all things to which Paul now refers are those things which Yeshua himself has given him to do, namely, to carry the message of the truth to the various communities to which he has been sent. The Greek does not have through him, but rather in him who strengthens me. I can do all things in him who strengthens me. Here again, I think the the Greek is a little more uh, concise in showing us that the connection is our unity with him. When we walk with him, when we seek to know his will, when we seek to honor him, when our life is bound up in him, this is how we are strengthened to do what he wants. While this may seem to be a significant difference, it would seem that Paul is emphasizing union with Messiah as the very means by which he has been able to be content regardless of his physical circumstances. If I'm in the Messiah and he is in me, if we are one together, then surely as I bow to him and give him the glory in all aspects of my life, I can expect that he will bring success. Such contentment is based upon uh, knowing who one is in Messiah and how being in him assures the believer not only of eternity with him, but also in being more and more able to honor him in one's life here in this fallen world. As the believer in Yeshua grows in understanding and application of the scriptures, walking by the power of the Ruach, and more and more conforming their life to that which pleases him, the child of God is strengthened to fulfill the very life for which he or she has been created, that is, to glorify God in all of one's life. Such growth in one's spiritual life is the path to true contentment in the Lord. And so, that's uh, that's all I have for tonight, but it's that uh, the goal that we have to know the Lord in, in His fullness, to know Him through the Scriptures, to meditate upon who He is, what He has done for us, what He is doing for us, and what we are privileged to do for His glory. That is the final message of these uh, important verses. All right. Well, thank you for coming, and uh, I hope this has been a valuable uh, time for you. And uh, we will not be having uh, our study next week. Uh, I'll be gone. And the following week also, which is the day before Thanksgiving, we won't be having it, and the next week. So we will not be having for three weeks because the third week will be the uh, third day of Hanukkah. Okay, so we're going to take three weeks off. I'm sorry for the delay, uh, but uh, we'll be back on, and uh, I'll make sure that I uh, let you all know that and look forward to being with you. In the meantime, if I don't talk with you before then, uh, have a great uh, Hanukkah, and uh, look forward to celebrating and and Thanksgiving too, Thanksgiving and Hanukkah, okay? So hope that you have a good time with your family or wherever you're able to uh, be. Shalom. Have a great week.